Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Again, the context for this particular series is in the book of Acts. And as a refresher, again, in the book of, of the church on Pentecost, was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, went up into the room of where, the, where the disciples were gathered to pray, filled them with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other language and speak in other tongues, and they began to, their worship begins to spill out into the street. And before we know it, Peter stands up and he gives the sermon of his lifetime, and we read that over 3,000 people were baptized that day. And that was the kickstart of the church, re- resulting in, in phenomenal growth, but also resulted in a lot of uh, miracles, signs, and wonders that continue to happen throughout the entire book of, of Acts. And anyway, what we see in the book of Acts, we see 12, at least 12 identifying marks of the early church uh, that characterized the spirit-filled church. And if we want to be a spirit-filled church, we, those marks would also characterize our church. And so far, we looked at five marks. We looked at the idea that the early church was a, was a praying church. We looked at the idea that the early church was a, was a gospel-centered church. We looked at the idea that the early church was a church that was devoted to the apostles' teaching. It was a biblical church. We looked at the idea that the church was an eating church. They liked to the fellowship together. It was fellowship that really was, provided the, the glue for the, to keep the community together, especially in, in tough times. And last week, we looked at the idea that the first-century church was a, a generous church that they were willing to liquidate their assets to care for the needs for each other. And we saw all these, most of these marks in, the, in, in, a, in a chunk of passage found in the early part of uh, the book of Acts, particularly in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. But before we finish off this particular passage and move on to the next one, I'd like to read through it one more time and see if we could pick up one more identifying mark of the church. Reading again from Acts 2, 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so in this brief chunk of passage, what we get is a, is a nice little snapshot of the early church, what it looked like. And again, in this passage, we see a lot of different marks of the church. But the mark that I want to key in on comes actually out of the last part of this section, Acts 2.47, the first part of Acts 2.47, where it says, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. They were praising God. So the mark that I want to identify today to talk about today is that a spirit-filled church is a worshiping church. Now, I was going to originally call it that, say that the spirit-filled church was a praise and worship church, but it just seems a little bit clunky. But, you know, really we use the words praise and worship kind of interchanging uh, back and forth. And that's okay because they are pretty much associated or very much uh, familiar to each other or familiar to us. Yeah, but let's think first about the idea of praise. When you think about praise, praise is the idea of just speaking of the excellencies of someone. In our case, the someone is God. 
You know, we have a psalm that kind of summarizes that nice. It's Psalm 9, 1 and 2, where it says, I will praise your Lord with all my heart. I will tell you of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so again, the idea of praise is speaking to the excellent excellencies of a person. In our case, it's the excellencies of God. And what we see is that praise is often accompanied with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is just showing appreciation to the one that we're giving praise to. A good passage reminds us of this is Psalm 100, verse 4, where it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving in his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Again, we see the praise is often coupled with thanksgiving. But what is worship? Worship is, a, is similar to praise, but what it adds is this idea of submission, of giving our lives over to the person that we're praising. And so it has the idea, again, uh, of that we're, we're, we're coming before a person and we're, we're actually bowing down, we're kneeling, we have this reverence for it, and again, we are submitting our lives to the person. Again, this person we're talking about is God. And the original word, actually, that we translate worship is also translated other places as prostrate. Not prostate, but prostrate, right? It's, it's basically bowing down or kneeling before a person. And again, we see this in another passage, you know, out of the book of Psalms where it says, Psalm 95 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. So again, you get this idea of this bowing down, and not only that, worship is kind of has this idea of ascribing worth to some person, to someone. Again, our case is God, which basically means that it's, our worship should not be some sort of just a, a physical type exercise, but really just ascribing value to the one they're worshiping. Again, we see this spelled out in Psalms 96, where it says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So God is the only one that really is worthy of our worship. Everything else is merely idols. And so anyway, so we can probably assume that the first century church was engaging both in praise, you know, speaking of the excellencies of God, but also worship, that they were bowing down to God. And so again, one of the marks of the early church was that it was a worshiping church. But the problem is that is in that brief little passage in Acts, it really doesn't tell us it doesn't give us a formula. It doesn't give us a, a manual for worship that would just help us to know what we need to know to set up kind of a worship experience. It doesn't tell us which instruments we should have, you know, whether you need a piano or whether we have a, a, a flute or a violin. It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell, tell us that we, whether or not we need to have a, a, a worship team or a choir or a combination of both. It doesn't tell us whether we should read out of the hymnals or sing out of the hymnals or sing off a screen. It doesn't tell us whether we should have a drum booth or whether we should even have drums. It doesn't tell us whether we should, in our worship, whether we should stand with arms lifted up or we should get on our knees or just sit in quiet meditation. It doesn't spell that stuff out for us. And when you ask why, well, maybe these things weren't issues for the first century church. But we know they're issues for us today, aren't they? As a side note, Debbie uh, subscribes to this worship leader blog which is a blog of worship leaders just talking together. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to, 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 to read because in that blog, among other things, they talk about all the comments that people make about a worship experience, all the criticisms that people have about a worship experience. 
And so I had Debbie pull out a few real-life examples of what people say about a worship environment. Things like, I came for a blessing, not a blasting. The only thing holy about the worship leader is his genes. Today's worship was so sweet and mellow, it drew my heart out instead of beating it out with a drum. Or please don't teach us any more songs. Or my favorite one, the worship leader is not the boss of me. <laughs> Debbie says, not true. <laughs> You're not the boss of me. These are real comments. They're, they're sad. And, and unfortunately, people use these type of things to evaluate worship. Isn't that funny? When really, you know, anyone should be evaluating worship is the one we worship. Is God, right? And something tells me that God would not be there saying, you know what, your timing was a little bit off with the lights today, right? Or the pastor is wearing jeans. Or we need to have a better balance between the hymns and the contemporary music. I don't think God would be talking about that. You know, what, but what is, where would we find God's criteria for worship, for acceptable worship? Now, again, it'd be nice to be able to find it right here in that snippet of Acts. But really, to find it, all you need to do is flip back a couple books to the book of John, where we see Jesus encountering a woman next to a well. You know, a little bit of background on this. Again, Jesus is walking through Galilee and into Samaria with his disciples. And he's tired, so he sits by a well, and he wants to get a drink. And this woman shows up, and he begins this conversation with her over water, of all things. But before long, he's talking to her about relationships. And before long, you know, he's kind of prying a little bit into her life, and she gets kind of uncomfortable. So what she decides to do is she's going she's to distract her by changing the conversation, by talking about religious things. And so she says, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What she's talking about here is that Again, uh, you may not recall, but when we talked about the Samaritans, the Samaritans were despised people by the Jews because they were the people that during the exile, they intermarried with the foreigners. They kind of, kind of uh, became a mixed breed of Jewish people and, and foreigners. And so they weren't thought of very highly amongst the Jewish people. And to make matters worse, they claimed that the place of worship was Mount Gerizim, where I believe it was Isaac or Abraham was believed to have tried to sacrifice, begin to sacrifice Isaac, where again the Jews believe that the true worship is in Jerusalem. And so what this woman is doing, she's, a, she's attaching this concept of place to worship. And Jesus kind of stops her right there and he says, listen, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and the truth. There's a lot we could talk about in this passage. This idea of spirit and truth can be interpreted in many different ways. But when we think about truth, you know, we think about the idea that, you know, we're worshiping the God that has been revealed to us through his word, through the Bible. But not only that, really the God that has been re revealed to us through the true word, Jesus Christ. The one who says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. So when we speak about worship and truth, we're talking about worshiping the true, one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. 
And really, again, that's, a, that's kind of a complicated thing. It's a difficult thing because, because, you know, how do we make sure that we are, you know, when it comes in the context of worship and lyrics, how do we make sure that we're, we're worshiping truthfully? And a lot of songwriters go through a lot of pain to make sure that they've selected words that are biblically sound. A lot of work goes into it. But yet, there's people out there that are doing everything they can to pick away at those words. Especially if they get the sense that some of those words, some of those lyrics may be unbiblical. A perfect example is a song that we, we sing around here a lot where it says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place with this atmosphere. Or fill, come flood this place, fill this atmosphere. Anybody see a problem with that? If you do, what is it? What do you think it would be the problem is? The problem is that some people say, well, that's bad theology to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here because the Holy Spirit is already here. That's their logic. It's just silly logic because, as we know, just because you're in a place doesn't mean you're welcome. And so, again, the argument is that, you know what, just as we can feel unwelcome in a house, the Holy Spirit can feel unwelcomed here. Another example is the song that says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I mean, some people don't like that because you're saying God's love is reckless. God is not reckless in his love. God is perfect in his love. And I bring this up, just say there's people out there that are really just nuancing every single little word. And especially when you get into denominational thought, you basically get people, denominations that are taking every single song and taking it through this grid or this filter or this template, this denominational template, to see if the words, to ensure that the words are theologically sound. Now, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We should worship in truth. But would you say that ensuring that we've got all the right words and then somehow parroting or reciting those words back to a screen is worship? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. Because you can't simply just recite truths back to God without engaging of the heart any more that you can recite truths back to your spouse without engaging the heart. You can't. It becomes dry and empty. Dry and empty. We've all been, in, many of us have been in churches like that where, you, you know, the, everything is theologically sound. You're singing words that you know are right or correct. They could take it word for word right out of the Bible. Yet things feel the atmosphere Fear feels cold and empty and dry. It's because the Spirit's not there. You're not worshiping in truth and in spirit. Again, Jesus says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You know, so, you know, it's fairly easy to, not, I mean, it's, it's easier to figure out what truth, what we mean by true worship or worshiping in truth. It's difficult to, to decide what it means to worship in spirit. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to say is basically it means worship at the place that is most connected with God. The inner life, the, the spirit, what some would call the heart, what some would call the soul, the part is most deeply connected with God. That's what we mean by worship in spirit. And again, we can have all the deep understanding uh, of God that comes to, through books or even the Bible. We can have the truth but we need the Spirit because the, the truth without the Spirit is dry legalism. On the other hand, the Spirit without the truth is nothing but emotion. It's not an either or, it's a both and when it comes to worship. 
But again, what does it mean to worship in spirit or in heart? In other words, how would God evaluate heartfelt worship? You know, on close, or we begin to wind down, I would, I would, I would suggest that there's, there's four, at least four ways that God might evaluate whether worship is heartfelt or not. The first one is, is that it's a place where worshipers want God. Now, that would seem like it would go without saying that if you come to church, you want God, right? Wrong. Everybody's not here because they want God. People come for all sorts of reasons to church. Some come out of a sense of obligation. They feel that their arm is twisted to be here. You know, other people come for the music. Some people come because they just like hanging around with people. Some people come for the food. But some people don't come for God. So, so they come for reasons, but they don't come for God. And so what happens during a time of worship, they just go through the motions. And, and, and to be honest, I've been there as a pastor. I don't always come to church wanting God. I come because i got to give a sermon. I'm just being transparent. I think if we're honest, we all come for other reasons on certain, any given Sunday for, for another reason, and it's not always about God, right? We go through the motion. But yet at the same time, I know that there are also people that come here that are really desperately wanting God. Not only want, because they have a need, not only a need, they have a need for God to intervene in their life in a very real way. People that are dealing with incurable illnesses. People that are just dealing with, 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 with marital problems. People that are dealing with depression. You know, people that are wits end when it comes to their children or, or their finances, whatever. You know, they're, they're, they're bringing that, that sense of desperation. I, I, I'm coming to find God. As a side note, last Friday we did this thing called, called Fight Night. It was previously called Overflow. We decided Fight Night was a better title for it. But I know, you know, that was a, it was, for one, it was an amazing thing. If you missed it, you missed it. You missed something big. It really was something phenomenal. And you really felt the presence of God there. So I would encourage you next time, try it out. Check it out once. And I guarantee you'll be back. But I know that during that time, and I wasn't even able to be in it during the whole time, but I know because I talked to people at the beginning that there were people there out of desperation. People that have been dealing with illnesses for a long time. People that have been dealing with, with financial problems. People that have been dealing with marital problems. People that were hungry and thirsty for God. So much so that they could relate to the psalmist when he writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? You get the sense of a desperation there? It's somebody who wants to meet with God. Not somebody just comes because that's what they do, or it's obligation. It's somebody that's looking and wants to go. When can I go? Is excited about going to meet God. So, so again, you have people that come to church out of desperation and come and meet God out of desperation, but you also have people that come out of just the sheer delight. There's people that just come to praise God in the fellowship of other believers. They just come to delight in God. And that's okay. Again, they can relate to the psalmist that writes, I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. We had people there again that came out of desperation, but we were all people that just came and said, I'm just here to praise God. I just love it. I'm just going to bask in the fellowship of praise with other people. And so again, the first criteria to have a, uh, you would think that, that God would have to be a, a heartfelt worship is that they would want God. 
But not only that, that they would bring, they would come in, they would be, it would be worshipers who were worship, a place where worshipers have humbled hearts. You know, we think about humility. It's about having a low estimate of yourself. Really, in our case, in, in God's case, it's really having a, a, a real, a realistic estimate of yourselves. And not thinking of yourself too highly. Why? Because we worship the God, we worship Jesus Christ, who was the epitome of humility. Again, we learn in a, a, a Philippians 2, one of my favorite verses, where, where Paul's talking to Christ. He says, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clinged on to, but instead what did he do? He took on the very nature of a servant. He was found in the appearance of a man, and being found in the appearance of a man, what did he do? He became obedient to the point of death. He went even lower to the grave, death on a cross, and by doing so, God exalted him to the highest place above heaven, above earth, and even under the earth, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. We got nothing to be prideful for, do we? And so God is seeking our hearts, people, worshipers that understand the importance of humility, of having a real estimate of themselves in, tie, in the sight of God, to not exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves in the sight of God, so that as James says, humble yourself before the Lord, and that he will do the one to lift you up. And so again, humility in the context of worship is having a right understanding of yourself in relation to God. That God is God and we are not. And the better we understand that, the more likely that God can squish or help squish the, 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 the bug of pride, so to speak, and to allow unhindered worship of him. You know, a good example in the Bible is the story of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet during the, the Jewish exile. And he was called by God to be a, be a prophet, a spokesperson for people, for the Jewish people. And when he was first called in chapter 6 of Isaiah, you know, God gave him a vision. He God allowed him to see into the very throne room of heaven, see God seated on the throne with the glory of God surrounding him. And when it finally sunk in who he was looking at, what did he say? Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have been seeing the King, the Lord Almighty. He knew who he was. He was humbled before God. His eyes were opened. And his eyes were not open just because he, he read more about God, that he had an intellectual knowledge of God. No, in his case, he learned by experience. And although we might not be able to have an Isaiah-type experience, we can begin to have a right view of God as we, as we not only read his word, but we pray over his word, we meditate over his word, and we engage in worship pretty soon. We begin to have a right view of God and a right view of ourselves, resulting in an unhindered worship before God and others, which means that in the context of worship, we're free. We're free to stand up and raise our hands. We're free to get down low and kneel on our knees. We're free to sit back and just have silence meditation. We have freedom because we're not worried about, we have no one to impress. We can't impress anybody. And we're certainly not worried about impressing those around us. We're just free to worship. And when we get to that place again of lowliness, of being made low with no pride before us, that's when God comes in and he says, I know what, you, you've, been, you've been down low now, I'm going to fill you up. 
I'm going I'm I'm to come into the place, the lowest place, because that's where I reside. Again, Isaiah says, I live in, speaking of God, he says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is con- contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We talk a lot about revival, but I don't think we know what it means or where it starts. Revival starts right here. You have to be revived before the church can be revived. It's not, it's not having a bunch of banners and just saying we're going to have revival. Revival begins in a change of heart. A change is only going to happen when you come before God and you expect that God is going to show up and do something in your heart. Which brings me to the next concept of what God considers to be acceptable worship. It's a place where worshipers expect something from God. Now, this is where I'm on shaky ground because, you know, we know or at least claim that worship is about God, right? Worship is about God. It's not about us. I know that. I believe that. I think, oh, you believe that worship is about God. But the funny thing is about worship is that God doesn't need our worship. We need our worship. We need worship of God. That we, and, and when we, because we are the one who benefits, we are the people who benefit most from the worship, not God. God's, worship is God's gift to us. Again, we come there in a posture of expectation of humility. God's going to maybe give us something. And we're not talking about prosperity gospel. We're just talking maybe about a healing. We're talking about a, a gentle word of encouragement from somebody. We're talking about a word that's spoken over somebody. We're talking about a, maybe a word of uh, uh, forgiveness or, or just, a, again, a, a prompting or rebuke of sin. Those are all healing things that, that God gives to us within the context of worship. So worship becomes a context for healing, for making us back whole, for making us back into the persons that, pe- that God intended us to be from the very beginning. One of my favorite passes, pastors, Jack Havert, says it like this. He says, from God's viewpoint, worship is a means designed to unlock the human heart that he may answer to human need and serve his own heartfelt interest in the well-being of his most beloved creatures. That's heavy stuff there. But basically he says, you know what? Yeah, open your hearts. Unlock your hearts. Allow God to meet your need. And in doing so, you've actually met his need. For us to be the people that he designed us to be way before sin entered the world. And so in that sense, worship has both a, a redemptive and a restorative nature aspect to it too. I don't have time to get into this, but, but again, we, we have to understand that worship is actually the vehicle that God uses to bring us back to the persons we were supposed to meant to be from the very beginning. You know, we fell from sin as the story goes back in Genesis, right? But we didn't only fall from sin, we uh, fall because of sin. We fell from worship to God. We stopped worship. Sin is just a failure to worship. A failure to worship God, it turned around and worshiped somebody else. And so again, God uses worship as the pathway to bring us back home. We fell some worship, he brings us back into worship, and uses worship as the pathway to make us, turn us back into the person that we're, or persons we were meant to be for all time. And what's our role? Our role is just to, again, come there in humble submission to open our hearts and allow him to fill us up to satisfy our real needs, our real desires, the real desires of our hearts, and then to take that love, to take that healing, and begin to go out and extend that healing hand out into the world. Which brings me to my last point of acceptable worship. 
Acceptable worship is where worshipers extend God's love to others. Again, worship isn't complete if you keep it to yourself. And I know a lot of people come in and they want to get this buzz. They want to get this buzz on and feel good when they leave. But true worship, the worship that God accepts, is worship that extends God's love out into the lost and dying and broken world. It's why Jesus says in his commandment, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical worship results in the horizontal. Right? And so we are, again, to take that love and extend it out into the world. It doesn't just change us. We're supposed to change the world. Which, again, can come in a variety of different, uh, different formats. Again, it could start with a simple asking for forgiveness in the church or, or somewhere in the world. You know, stepping out of the world and begin to, you know, break down those walls of hatred and, and bitterness and, and, and seek forgiveness of those that might think different, differently than you. Or it might mean just taking that light of the gospel that's been revealed to you and, and, and spreading it in Bellevue, Pittsburgh, and beyond. Or just, again, as we talked about last week, just satisfying the simple needs of those around you. And we do that, you know, that's the bottom line, is that that then provides us strategic pathway for God to, to, again, to extend his kingdom into the world. Anyway, in close, you know, as Jesus said, you know, there's a time coming and has now come when true, excuse me, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so if there's a time, and if there's a time for worship, it seems like it would be now, right? I mean, I think you've all figured it out. If you watch any amount of TV or watch any bit of news, that we live kind of in unsettling times. The risk of nuclear war is hanging over our head. There's social, economic unrest going on. The newslet, newspaper headlines are about sexual abuse or something. The weather, you know, is having a field day, creating chaos in the world, you know, with earthquakes in Indonesia or hurricanes in Panama City. There's something going on. And again, I'm not someone who tries to be an, I'm not just an end times type guy, I try to predict the end of times, but, but may, I, I would suggest that maybe there's a shakeup going on. That maybe God is shaking up this, our foundations a little bit and preparing us for the kingdom to come. And we actually get a hint of this. I just came across this passage this last week in, in, in Letter to the Hebrews where it says at that time his voice at this time speaking again of Jesus I believe I'm not sure if this is Jesus or speaking of God or Jesus but he says at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens so again that there there might be some sort of a a, a shake up going on and if that's the case then the response for us as church should not be more protest more violence more anger any of the above. It shouldn't be that kind of stuff. Our response should be worship. In fact, he alludes to that when he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. 
In other words, it's time to get your act together. Worship God. That's the solution. The solution is more worship. Not more protest, not more violence, not more anger, but more worship. Anyway, again, a spirit-filled church is a, is a worshiping church. A spirit-filled church is a, is a church that worships in spirit and truth. And again, as we learned, is that it's not only the truth is really about the, the truth about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Worshiping in spirit, worshiping in heart is, again, a desire, a want for God, a longing for God. But coming to God in a posture of humility where we understand who God is and who we are. And as we come to God in a posture of humility, he will come before us. He will come down to us and made low. And he will come down to us and begin to fill us up with what we need. And again, we're not supposed to just sit there and take what we got out of him, the love we got out of him, and leave it there. No, we are to make that love and to extend it into the world. And we do that. We're not only experiencing acceptable worship before God, we are participating with God by clearing a pathway for his kingdom to come into the world, come into the world, and for him to make his grand entrance in. Let us pray. God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this concept of worship, Lord, that again is a very, is, a, is an idea, is a word that is just framed with so much stuff, Lord, so many issues surrounding it that we've lost sight of what worship truly is. Lord, we don't know what worship is, but you do. Again, you tell us to worship in spirit and truth. So I pray that even today, that as we go into this time of worship, Lord, that, uh, that you would be amongst us, Lord, that you would teach us again how to come to you, that we come because we want you, that we desire you, a posture of humility and a posture of acceptance or anticipation that you want to do something within us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast.